Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We are in our, our um, fourth week of our series going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be going through the rest of the summer. And um, Ecclesiastes is, is um, if you've read ahead or as you've been following along with us, uh, Ecclesiastes sometimes, the way it says things can be a little bit shocking. Right, because so much of the Bible plays a uh, a role where it's ta- speaking to us about the you know the character of God, the 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 role that uh, you know uh, God's uh, character and, and person plays a role in our lives, and then you come across Ecclesiastes, and it says stuff like life is meaningless, and it can be a little shocking. And, and today, the the passage of scripture we're going to be looking through is kind of one of those uh, passages um, that that doesn't give you the Sunday school answer. Uh, but it just kind of just kind of says things for what it is as you kind of look around and, and survey the landscape of life, um, and 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 within the passage, it's kind of that we're looking at. It's kind of bookended, talking about a, a, a topic and a question uh, that either uh, currently we're, we're facing or we're bothered by, or that that we've kind of had to come face to face with before. And so, so as we get into it, let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the sermon today. We're going to be going through Ecclesiastes 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 3. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you for how good you are. Lord, as we come and we open your word together as a people who love you, have placed our faith in you, and, and know that you are good, God, be with us today. Holy Spirit, illuminate the truths of your word to us. And Father, let your promise that your word does not return void be true today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. When's the last time you were asked a question and had to answer with, I don't know? For some of us, maybe it's just like something silly, like my daughters right now play a fun game where when we ride in the car, they just ask questions until I say, I don't know, and then they mock me and say, Daddy doesn't know anything. That's the current game we're playing. The, the, the questions range from deep theological and philosophical questions like why did God create people to questions like why are rabbits not birds? And it's like, I don't know. And they're like, I gotcha, you know. <laughs> maybe, maybe answering the question, I don't know. I remember when I was um, in Bible college, uh, the dean of students would say that sometimes the best theological answer you can give to a question is I don't know. Uh, Maybe right now you're you're comforting or walking through a tough situation with someone that you know and care for, and when they ask you why does it have to be this way, all you know to say is I don't know. Um, You know, growing up and being, uh, you know, growing up in the church and coming to know Jesus at a young age and going through life, high school, college, things like that, a lot of times the question that would come up would be if, if there's a God who is good and a God of love and, and the God that you say he is, then why do bad things happen to good people? And we have all kinds of answers to that. A lot of times the best answer to that is I don't know. And the question that we're looking at today, uh, if we kind of rephrase the, the, the passage of Scripture here, essentially what the preacher, the teacher that, that the author of Ecclesiastes calls himself the question is that's kind of the converse to that, why does bad things happen to good people? And he asks the question, why do good things happen to bad people? Right? Because, because that's a question that, that kind of on the flip side of the, the bad things to good people, like, 
Like, if there is a God who is good and loved, then, then why do good things happen to bad people? Has that question ever hit you before? Maybe not in those terms. Maybe it's been more in the terms of why do people who, who seem to be, have no concern for God, have no care for the ways of God, seem to be the people that have everything they want? They seem to not have any trouble. Maybe they have enough money to where they don't have to work. And, and, and on the outside looking in and the situational life we're in, we think that looks good. Right? Like, why do good things happen to people who don't deserve it? And that's kind of the question that, that, the, that Ecclesiastes is giving us today. Because as we'll see, the, the author, the, the preacher, surveys the landscape of life around him. He seems to give the answer with, I don't know. With I don't know. And so what we're going to look at today is, is in these passages, we're not going to go straight through it. We'll cover all the verses, but we're going to jump around a bit. Like I said, the way it's structured is the, it's kind of bookended with, with the crux of the problem right in the middle. And what we have today is, is a promise, a picture, and a problem. So we're going to start with the problem, then we're going to look at the picture, and we're going to end with a promise. And for those of us who grew up Baptist, a three-pointed alliterated outline, might just be balm to your soul today. <laughs> so you're welcome. I was very excited about it this week. doesn't always happen, but when it does, I tell Fred about it, and we drink coffee to celebrate. <laughs> so the first thing, let, let, let's look at the problem. I'm going to pick up, we're just going to read the, the two verses, kind of the beginning and the end, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, and then chapter 4, verse 1. Ecclesiastes 3, 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, again, I saw all the oppression, all of the oppressions that are done under the, the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them, because on the side of their oppressors was power. And there was no one to comfort them. See, the, the, the problem that's that summed up in one word here, that many of us feel, like I said at the beginning, many of us feel maybe we're working through right now, or we're walking through with someone else, the problem is oppression. Oppression, Oxford Dictionary defines uh, oppression like this. It's prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or control. Now, I just want to like take a second because even the word oppression right now or that definition maybe caused you to have some tightness in your shoulders or in your chest or your heart started racing or you felt a little bit of sweat on your forehead or your lip because maybe your stomach knotted up is, is the reality that you yourself have faced or are facing oppression. Maybe that's your felt experience in life right now. Or, on the other side of that, maybe when you, hear, you see that definition, you read it on the screen, you, you hear the word oppression, maybe you have realized in your life that you have been a person who has oppressed others. On both sides of that, my prayer for us today is that we find freedom from oppression either as one being oppressed or from someone who has exercised cruel and unjust treatment of other people for a prolonged time, my prayer for you is that you find freedom in repentance and reconciliation in the name of Jesus. 
Because ultimately, the problem with oppression is how short-sighted it is. Oppression is what happens whenever we lose an eternal mindset. If, if what we see in front of us, if we think that the world and the people around us are just simply raw materials that we can shape and bend to our desires to create the life that we want at the expense of others, then this is what we get. Oppression is what we end up with. Because ultimately, if there's no God, if there's no higher power, and I make myself the highest power in my life and in the life of those around me, well, then what's the problem, right? Like, that sounds very convenient. And that's why abuse happens. That, that's, that's why we have such trauma-filled lives so often. It's because people, because we get sh- so short-sighted that we can't see beyond our own desires. Like, how else would like multiple nations be able to build societies and economies based off the chattel slavery system. Nearly 200 years of of developed predominantly white countries. Like talk about being short-sighted. You can't see the eternity placed in a person's soul and humanity simply because of the color of their skin. See, like it or not, the reality is power dynamics are always present. And how we use those power dynamics define the, that oppression and abuse. And, and, and power dynamics are not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, I mean, God created humans. He created us in his likeness, in his image. And that means he gave humans power in order to bear his image to the world around us. Right? I mean, I mean this means that he gave us humans our job to live our lives. And it's to take God's character into the world around us, his wisdom, his kindness, his love, truth, faithfulness, goodness, his hatred for injustice, to take that to our, our homes, our neighborhoods, our jobs, our communities. But humans, since the beginning, have also been tricked into thinking that we can do things on our own terms, right? Diane Langberg, in her, in her uh, book, Redeeming Power, she's a PhD Christian psychologist who specialized in trauma and abuse, She says it like this. She says, those who bore the character of God used power in a way that gave them likeness to the enemy of God. Let me me say that one more time. They who bore the character of God used power in a way that gave them likeness to the enemy of God. See, humans, we were made to cultivate and subdue the earth. And those are not, the, the, the words cultivate, subdue, rule, those are not domination words. Those are caring words. Those are cultivating words. They're leading and loving like Jesus words. When God created man and woman, right, even from the beginning, he created them one flesh side by side, and they were supposed to rule and subdue the earth together, not each other. But power dynamics are really interesting things, right? Because right now in my house, the most powerful person is eight and a half weeks old and weighs 11 pounds. She determines how much we sleep, when we eat, when we have to go home from being out having a good time, right? Like when to come home from something, when we're allowed to leave to go somewhere. Having a baby makes you realize ultimately how powerless you really are, right? One of my my buddy puts it this way. He says, you know, it's crazy how much concern I have for my kids' well-being while they have little to no concern for mine. (laughs) So I'm here to tell you today, I am oppressed. (laughs) By Lucy. I'm kidding. 
I can say that now because she can't process this yet. It'll be offline by the, by the time she's old enough, hopefully. But see, oppression occurs. Lucy doesn't know, right? She's not using her power. She's not wielding it and lording it over me, right? But oppression occurs when someone leverages their power in a relationship in order to subdue and rule another person at the expense of their humanity. Again, Diane Langberg, when she talks about humanity, the, the three things humans are given uh, in her book, she says, in the, con- in, in the image and likeness of God, the three things that make us human is that we have a voice, so we're able to speak for ourselves and speak truth to others. We, we're able to be in relationship with others in a trusting, loving union with people around us. And then the third thing is that we're able to create and cultivate, which is to shape the world and use artistic thought process and make things. Right? But, but when those three things or any of those things are taken away, that's when oppression, when, when you no longer feel like you have a voice, when you feel like you can't trust or be in a relationship with others, or you have the inability to use your agency as a human to, to work, to cultivate, to make things good around you, it takes away humanity. See, so that's the problem. The problem is oppression. As, as, as the, the author, the preacher looks around at the world around him, he says it just doesn't make any sense that in the place of righteousness, right? Like, like this is where you say, and, it, and, it, and it's hard because whenever your preferred uh, presidential candidate gets elected, you, it's easy to say like, well, of course, God puts all authority, right, government in power, and it's a good thing. But then whenever the person you don't want to win wins, it's a little harder to say that. And you end up saying what the preacher says here, where it says, even in the place of righteousness, in the place that God is supposed to ordain power and authority, there's wickedness. And how does that work? How does this work out? Right? That's the problem. And, and let's look at the picture. Let's look at the picture that he gives us of why oppression, why using power to, 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 to reduce other people instead of cultivate other people is a problem. Let's look at verses uh, 18 through 22 of chapter 3, and then uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. So verse 18 through 22, he says, um, I actually, I'm going to start in 17. I, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may, uh, them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. One dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all are from the dust, and all return to the dust. But who knows whether the spirit of man goes up or whether the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. And then in in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, And I thought the dead who were already dead were more fortunate than the living who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. So like I said, as he's looking around to the, the problem of oppression, there, there, there's good things happening to bad people. What's the answer? And the, the author's basically like, I, like, I don't know. Because here's the reality. Like, are, are humans even any better than human? Like, any, any better than beasts? In verse 18, I, uh, the, the modern English translations are kind of tough, so here's like the Matt interpretation with help from the Jerusalem Bible. Um, a, a more literal translation of verse 18 would read, I also thought that mankind behaves like this so that 
God may show them up for what they are and expose them for the brute beasts that they are to each other. So here's the picture that's given us, is that oppression dehumanizes. It dehumanizes. See, like I said, those, those three kind of aspects of humanity, having a voice, being able to be in trusting relationships, and the ability to shape the world, when those are taken away, um, then what it does, it takes away our agency as humans. And, and maybe it doesn't look like physically forcing or hurting someone to be quiet. Um, maybe it's just the smaller little things. The preacher tells us to notice that those who stay in seats of justice and government and the people that can make decisions, they were the ones who were oppressing. Those who were able to write legislature were creating systems of injustice and oppression. Right? Maybe instead of being like an outright angry like loud, forceful person, you belittle someone with jokes so much that they just stop talking around you. Like maybe you've just been so critical of someone that's close to you, they just quit using their imagination because it's easier just to stay fact with facts. Like students, high school, middle school students, maybe you've made fun of someone to the point where they just don't even want to go to school anymore. Or maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. The shame the frustration, the anger, fear, and sadness that we feel is because we're not able to be human the way God made us to be human. But here's what's interesting, too, is that you look at that verse 18, and not only is the, are the oppressed dehumanized, but in a different way, the oppressors are dehumanized, right? Like, like people who, who put themselves in the place of God in their lives and in, the, and in the lives of the people around them. Like God does what it takes to remind us who we really are. That's what it says. It says God does this. He, he lets people do this so that they can see for themselves that they're really just acting like animals. Like, like they're not actually being human and living to their potential. There, there's a great story of this. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is Daniel chapter 4. Okay, so what God has done, God has, because of... Uh, Israel, his chosen people, worshiping idols and, and things like that, uh, he sends, he, he says that he chose an instrument, which is Babylon, to go and, and take his people into exile. And, and so you have these, these you know, pagan kings coming into the nation Israel, taking people out of Israel. And then you have Daniel, who's one of the young men taking out of Israel into Babylon. And, he, and, he, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has this dream. And in the dream, basically what it is, it's a reminder, God giving him a gentle reminder that, hey, you're only in the position you're in because I let you be there. All right? And it's kind of a warning that, that he would have understood in the, in the ancient Babylonian culture that if a God gives a vision to a leader, that basically reminds him, okay, I need to care for other people the way this God has cared for me. Right? So, so he gets this dream. And, and he's reminded, Daniel interprets the dream for him, and, and he says, hey, just, just remember that God, God's the one who put all these kingdoms and made all this stuff happen, so, so be careful and, and don't take the credit for yourself. And of course, because like all other humans, Nebuchadnezzar, an, a, a year later to the day, he's walking on top of his palace looking around, and he says, like, man, like, aren't I the one who did all this stuff? Like, like wasn't it me who built this big palace and, 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 and created this big nation? And he starts taking the credit for himself, which, if you, if you read between the lines, means, in theory, he, he said, I'm the one who built this, a.k.a. slavery and oppression. And as soon as he forgot that he wasn't the one actually in charge of other people's lives, 
Like, you know, Daniel 4, anybody know what happens to him? He literally becomes a beast. Like he literally, it says that his claws grew out like, like eagles and that he started, like his, his hair grew out long like a beast and he started eating grass and drinking dew on the ground. And for, and for seven years, he walked around like that. And that's how he lived his life. And what that is, that, that is literally God showing us in, in like a literal way with Nebuchadnezzar what's been happening with humans since the beginning. Where God, at, at, the, at the time of, of the fall, God warns him. He says, hey, because of your sin, Adam and Eve, you two people that were supposed to do this humanity thing side by side and in oneness. He said, now things are going to get really tough. Because of your sin, the ground is going to yield its fruit, but only like if you work really hard are you going to get what you need now instead of being in a place where you had everything you needed. And then he says, he says you're, you're going to want to rule over him to the woman, but he, she says, but then God says, but he's going to rule over you. So because of the curse, what that is, that's basically saying you're not going to be able to live in your full humanity and right relationship because of your sin. And so all throughout the Bible, the pictures in the Old Testament of God's judgment on his own people for disobeying him and taking his place in their lives is almost like decreating, right? Like, like think about the 10 plagues of Israel. The 10 plagues of Israel, you look through it and, it, and it's like the dust, which is where human life came from, there are now gnats that chew and eat and take away life. Right, like creation started with the water that gave life to all the other plants. Now the now the water in the Nile is turned into blood, and you can't have life. It actually kills all the fish. Right, it's God speeding up the process of human sin to decreate them, to to prove that decreation is happening. And and it's the picture of the ones who oppress. The same thing that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. It's beastly. It's called getting too big for your britches. Why do you think in cartoons the mean boss who's terrible to all of his employees always look like an animal? You know? They're onto something here. So if all of, like, if all of this is true, if, if the very best of us end up using the power that God has given us to take away other people's agency and humanity, then, then verse 21 makes perfect sense of chapter 3. Let me look again. Who, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of the beast goes down to the ground? Like, if the best of us, the one who's supposed to be in power, protecting, providing, helping, resourcing, if they're the ones who are abusing their power, then like the coalette, like just looking at the immediate in front of us, like, yeah, that may, like, who knows? Who knows? And that's where we get verse 22. Verse 22 is where it all kind of comes to a head. It's kind of the crux and the turning point of the, of the matter here. Verse 22 of chapter 3, so I saw that there's nothing better, all right? I saw there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? See, that's, that's, the, that's the crux of the issue. Like, like, really, if you think about it, like, this is almost like a beautiful negative, right? You know what a beautiful negative is? A beautiful negative is like, like um, when you watch like a, like a family pet that you've loved and cared for so long, like, like we have our golden retriever, she's getting a little older. The vet said she's officially in her geriatric years, okay? And so, so her little face is getting white, and she's been this great dog to our family. And, and she loves our babies. 
So what's beautiful is that you see the, we see this little dog, this, this golden retriever that's been a great pup, and, and Lucy, our little one's laying on the floor, and Mia gets up, and she kind of hobbles because she's been laying down too long, so her joints are a little stiff, and she hobbles over, and she lays down next to the baby. And it's like, man, like, like that's beautiful. It's sad, right? Like, the reality is, like, she's getting old, and life happens, okay, right? This is Ecclesiastes. Like, life just happens. But it's beautiful that she still has that, like, to live for. Like, she still has that to look forward to. And that's what it is. Like, left, like basically what the preacher's saying here is like, hey, left to our own devices, the best we can do is just what we have right in front of us and learn to enjoy it, right? It, it's, it's, it's going out to eat when that check that you desperately needed to come in came in, right? It's plus, pressing sin to pay that bill that's weighing on you. It's sitting down with loved ones on a holiday and enjoying a big meal, splurging on something you can enjoy because you've worked hard and gotten paid. There's nothing wrong with that at all. The preacher was just being honest that if the reality is that if that's it, looking just straight ahead of him, directly around him, what he can see and touch and experience, that's the best it gets. Isn't that kind of a beautiful negative? But the preacher wasn't able to see as far down the road as we can because it's ultimately the promise that we have to look forward to. Look at, verse, look at verse 17 of chapter three again. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. See, the, the, the promise that we have is God promises hope for the oppressed. So judgment, that word can, can feel a little bit like a threat like we hear judgment, and, and especially if we grew up in, in religious cultures where like we're so terrified of the afterlife that we buy fire insurance as much as we can on earth, right? Like anybody go to a judgment house growing up? Anybody heard of a judgment house, what it is? I'm like, are we talking about Jesus here? What are we talking about? Like, what's the point? Anyways, whole different conversation. The point is, is that judgment is actually the reality of Jesus coming back the, the, the fact, like when all work's being exposed, we talked about it a few weeks ago after Easter, is that it's a really good thing. I, I love in First Timothy, I was re- or Second Timothy, I was reading it this week. Uh, Paul's talking to, writing to, to Timothy, his kind of uh, mentee, his protege, and, and he's, we think Second Timothy's probably the last letter Paul wrote before his death. And he's talking about fighting the good fight. I've run the race. I'm ready. I'm ready for what's next. And here's what he said. He said, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And you're like, yeah, Paul, you, you've earned it, buddy. Right? Like shipwrecks, beatings, you know, the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Like we're probably sitting here today because of the work of Paul 2,000 years ago. Right? Like he's done all the things. And you're like, you've earned it, man. Shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, and acted like it's no big deal. And here's what he says. He says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. We're like, good job, dude. You have earned it. But look what else he says. But not only to me, but to all who long for his appearing. See, the promise is, is that if it gets to the point where you're just looking around and you think, man, if the best I have is a good meal, it's not a bad thing. Good meals are great. A good hot meal, sitting down with family and friends to enjoy the fruit of your labor, that's a good thing. But Jesus is ready for us who look around and see the landscape and say, no, I, I've got a restlessness in me because I know God has something better for me coming. And the promise is that you're right. He does have more for you coming. 
Because God promises hope for the oppressed, like the, the Psalms, all throughout the Psalms, over and over, call God the one who hears the cry of the afflicted. He's the God of the oppressed. He's the one who stands for the fatherless and the widow, which, which is the Old Testament phrase for saying basically those who are like destitute. That's a word we don't use a lot, right? But, but those who have nothing to look forward to. Right? It's a promise because whether we like it or not, the judgment of God happens where he's going to come back and, and just like Pastor Fred talked about last week, there's a season for everything, and bad people are going to do bad things to good people, and they're going to get good, what seems like good things in return for it. But there's going to be a time where God comes back and exposes all of the works of people. And those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, Hebrews 12 says that we have a mediator. That, that when the exposing power and glory and purity and righteousness of God is brought on earth once and for all, those of us who have Jesus as a mediator are going to be able to walk free from all oppression, walk free from all bondage, from things, all the wrong things in the world is going to be made right. Paul, Paul kind of riffs on this again in his letter to the Thessalonians, and he says that those of us who are in Jesus, that God has not destined us for wrath. Like any of us who know that there's Jesus. In Romans 8, he says again that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thinking about the seasons for everything. A season where there are going to be bad people getting good things. That wickedness is in the seat of justice. I wonder if Paul had read Ecclesiastes the morning before he wrote Galatians. When he said that when just the right time, in just the right season, God sent his son. Because for us now, we get to have the words of Psalm 49 where it talks about oppression being in the sea. Uh, Psalm 49 and this passage in Ecclesiastes have a lot of parallels. But I love that at the end it talks about like people who, who, have, who have done wrong things but they keep getting seats of, of royalty and, and seats of righteousness and justice. At the end of Psalm, in, in Psalm 49, 15 it says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of death and he will receive me. And, and that's our hope. That, that's our promise. And, and, and the question for us today is we're about to take communion as we gather together today. Like, can, can you say that? And that's not a shame question where if you say, I can't, like, I don't think I can say that Jesus is really my hope and that I look forward to his return one day. That's not a shame question. That's an encouragement question. Because in the midst if you're like the preacher and you're, you're surveying the landscape of life around you, losing your job, broken relationships, an election cycle ramping up, we can look around and we can say that God really is our hope and that God has made a way for us to experience a life that's totally new and right. Right? The preacher could only see the trees, but we've been given a view of the forest. That oppression happens, wickedness sits in the seat of judgment, but our righteous judge came to pay the penalties for our sins. See, here's what Diane Langberg says again in her book. She says, such redemption was Jesus' master passion. This God came to seek and redeem what has been lost. So she goes on to ask, what have you lost? Have you lost your voice? Have you lost the truth drowned out by lies? Have you lost your life and its vibrancy, its strength and its giftedness? Your hope? 
Not the hope that everything here will be fine, because it's clearly not. But it's the hope within that, that waits, because God said he's making all things new. That includes you, and that includes every last one of us. So when we take communion today, we get to remember that Jesus, who was strong, did not consider equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage, but he became weak. We remember that Jesus, our Savior, who makes the weak strong, that he was oppressed and afflicted so that our sins could be forgiven. It was so that the promises of God could find all of their yes in him. Psalm 9.10 says that those who know your name, the name of God that he defined in Exodus 34, that he's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It says that those who know your name, they trust in you, Lord, for you have never forsaken those who seek you. So as we seek Jesus this morning through taking the bread and the cup, we remember that Jesus bore our sins so that those of us who have been oppressed by others can forgive and that those of us who have oppressed others can be forgiven because we have an advocate who's sitting in the right hand of the Father who wants to heal us and wants to take us on this way. We remember that Jesus, even though we were his enemies, in sin and death, chose to seek our well-being in every way. He himself was oppressed for our sins, and by his stripes we were healed. By his wounds we have been set free. So let's, let's just take a moment and reflect on the reality that Jesus came to make all wrong things right. As we're talking about good things happening to bad people, all those wrongs in your life. Maybe as I was talking today, you were just just hitting the tally marks, thinking of all the wrong things that are unfair, that when you ask why it's happening, the answer is I don't know. And let me just say that, that and remind us today that Jesus came, that, that as we take the cup, we remember the, the, the new covenant that he established where his own spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in us and made us a new creation. So in the midst of of the I don't knows and the this isn't fair and the is life better than what's in front of me, when we're reminded that we can answer a resounding yes because God hears us. Second Peter says to cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So in just a moment, our elders are going to be by the, by the tables here to hand the, the cup and the, the bread to you. And we have gluten-free. If you need that, let them know. I'm going to pray for us and then just take a moment. Because if you're here today and, you, and you've realized you need to repent, you need to confess to God the ways that you have oppressed others. And let me, let me just say, there's grace, come to the altar. Oh, what a savior, isn't he beautiful? We have people, prayer team in the back that if, as I've talked and you're like, man, I need to, I need to have someone pray with me about this. I, I can't carry this alone anymore. They would love to meet you in the back. But let me pray for us and, and, and just take a, let's take a moment to reflect on the reality that that Jesus came so that bonds can be broken and that we no longer have to be slaves 
to sin and fear and shame, but we can be slaves to goodness and righteousness in the name of Jesus. So Father, as we, as we take communion and we remember that Jesus, your body was broken for us, that your blood was shed for us to wash us clean, that it's a reality, it's not some theoretical thing, but, but because you physically, literally were beaten and bruised, oppressed, and absorbed the wrath of all sin for us on the cross, and then you rose from the grave, giving the exclamation mark on the, on the reality of redemption, that Jesus, we can rejoice today, and we have a hope to look forward to, because you are the God who are making all things new. So Jesus, we love you. Amen. Whenever you're ready, you can come up, grab it, go back to your seat, and we'll take it together. His body broken for us. And his blood shed for us. Jesus, it's in you alone that we find hope for tomorrow. It's because of your life, your death, and your resurrection that we know for sure that there is a hope and a goodness that's coming. And so Jesus, help us, be with us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, and Christ in us. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.